Hi, Nancy. Hi, Julie. Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Welcome back, everybody. So over the weekend, I was watching TV and I saw that um, Amanda Bynes' conservatorship has also ended. I know Britney Spears is like a hot topic and there was a whole movement, Free Britney, and we don't call them conservatorships here in Illinois. We call it guardianship, Mm -hmm, correct? Right. Correct. Um, and I don't know a lot about it. I, I know minimally. Um, I'm not sure what your thought process is. I have a power of attorney for my son's health care and for his financial. Although and, I think I've talked about in the past, it depends upon what state, how effective it really is. Yeah, and so many calls. That, I mean, this is a lot of calls that come in about this very thing. Somebody who sees um, their child becoming... Uh, you know, of age that they need to help them figure out the future and mm-hmm. end up, you know, send them to say, we look, need an attorney, we need uh, to figure out some sort of a plan of action. It's so on an individual base. And these sensationalized stories, you know, the big stories about Amanda celebrities is, um, <laughs> to me, it's kind of a whole different thing. I, I don't even know where to put that. They're in a whole different category of financial well, money, de- money definitely yeah, helps, finances, right? Exactly. Because I know a ton of parents who have fought when their child was very sick to try to get conser- conservatorship, guardianship, and and failed because they just don't have the money these celebrities' families do, and it's not as easy to attain. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, here it's 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 definitely a difficult thing to get, but it's a lot of times for the care of the person. It's not just the financials really at all. I mean, well, that's always a factor for the future. How's this person going to care for themselves when I'm no longer here? So many older parents begin to think about that, but um, it's really care and it's also being able to be involved with the mental health services as they get older too. If somebody's in the hospital getting to hear what's going on, um, and talk to the professionals, et cetera. And then the financial side is not as big a deal because it certainly isn't the same category of finances that these celebrities have. No. Um, I'm all about giving rights to consumers and, and people who suffer, and I believe, you know, sadly that's been abused. And I know firsthand that's been abused. But I think there's a lot of families like us who genuinely love our our children and our family members and, and want the best for them. And I feel like our rights are being overlooked in that in that facet. I don't want my child to be homeless or a member of the system because I can't protect him because he's so ill that he's refusing to give me access to any of his treatment. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. That's the main reason for the calls I get is that. Yeah. Is, is not, it isn't first about the finances. It's about that. It's about access to treatment and right. and a say in what's going on as they get older, whether they're in some sort of facility, hospital, or homeless shelter to be able to find out. So, you know, I look at these, these celebrity stories as, you know, first of all, I don't know much about each of these people at all, but I do know money is a big factor. The major financial yeah. side. Money, and I know just from hearing stories from families that if your child um, or loved one has been in the system, incarcerated and, and hospitalized, you have a better chance of getting it than if they aren't 
Mm-hmm. It's I, like it's like the silver. I always say the silver lining of somebody who you're caring for being hospitalized is use when they're in the hospital. Use the social workers that are working with them and their the resources in there because you will get things done three times as fast as if you were trying when that wasn't the case. Yeah, agree. If anyone listening has uh, some expertise on this, we would love to hear from you. Just send us an email. That would be great um, at behindourdoor.mail.com because we need the enlightenment as well. Yeah. So today we have a, a really interesting guest, Dr. Cherie Allen. Dr. Allen is a board-certified mental health pharmacist by training, and once she graduated from pharmacy school, did her residency in the area of mental health. As a result, now for the past 10 years, Cherie works in an outpatient mental health clinic servicing veterans. Dr. Allen also teaches at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine School of Pharmacy in Suwannee, Georgia. Great. Hi, Cherie. So good to have you here with us. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited. Yeah, we, we're re- we've really been looking forward to having this time with you. Good. So thank no you problem. so much. <laughs> For our listeners, why don't you give them a little um, background about what you do and, and why we asked you to be here, because I think it's so important people understand. Yeah, yeah of course. So my name is Cherie Allen. My, my patients and my students call me Dr. Allen, but I am a clinical mental health pharmacist, and I'll be honest with you, even my, my parents to this day still don't know what I do from day to day, but <laughs> what, what that means ultimately is I think when people think of a pharmacist, you usually think of someone that's working in the community, so Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, but um, what I get to do is I specialize in mental health medications. So I know a lot about different meds, but my specialty, my area that I practice in is is mental health. So I teach at a pharmacy school here in Georgia, and then I also get to work in outpatient mental health at the VA. So with our veterans, I help to manage their medications, ask questions, answer their questions. Um, so again, I, I always tell people, my own parents included, I ultimately talk about mental health medications all day, every day. How did you get how did you get in, interested in specializing in mental health in the mental health side of the medic of uh, pharmaceuticals? Yeah, so it when I was in school, so the last year of pharmacy school, we go on rotation. So first three years is is in the classroom work, and then the last year is going out to like hospitals doing rotations and whatnot. Well, when I for some reason, I can't. I don't even remember how it came about, but I had a psychiatry elective. Um, my preceptor was amazing. My teacher was amazing. It was a great experience, and it was the first disease state that we learned throughout pharmacy school. That just, I got it. I understood it. It was interesting to me. It was something just clicked. It was like the disease state that I said, "This is just very interesting," and it didn't take a whole lot of effort for me to to understand. Um, and it, it always held my interest. So after pharmacy school, I knew that I wanted to continue to specialize in mental health. I love teaching. So I knew those two things. I knew that I wanted to do mental health and I knew that I wanted to teach. So after pharmacy school, I did a residency up in Buffalo um, that allowed me to do both. And then ever since I was done with that program, I've been doing, doing the same thing, doing mental health and, and teaching students for the last 11 years now. Yeah, terrific. Which is such a difficult field to go into, I feel. Um, 
knowing what my son has gone through, you know, it's not, I mean, medicine is not an exact science, but dealing with mental health issues is even harder because what works for one person is not going to work for another. It's not like taking ibuprofen. Well, and you know what, from like, from, I think a pharmacist perspective. So I, I work again, I work at the pharmacy school um, and all of my colleagues all have their own specialties. They tell me day in and day out, they're like, I don't see how you do mental health. It's not black and white, but that's what I love about it. So when it comes to the disease states that they manage, um, we have guidelines that tell us like, use this medication and then use this and then use this. But when it comes to mental health, when I'm treating someone with depression, if I read the treatment guidelines, it says use an antidepressant. Or if I'm, if I'm treating someone that has schizophrenia, it says, well, use an antipsychotic. But it doesn't tell you, well, which one. And so other disease states do that. So my colleagues hate that about treating mental health. But I, I love it because it means you get to talk to the person and figure out, you guys figure out together what might be best for that person. There's lots of gray, which yeah. can be scary, but, but I, I work with it. Now, so those, these medications we know, and I suppose, uh, you could classify them all or almost as psychotropic medications. Is that right? Yes. yes. So can you tell, just for the sake of our listening audience, list off psychotropic medications, you know, the classifications so that they have an understanding of what we're referring to, just for starters? Yes. So a psychotropic medication um, in general is considered to be some a medication that's used to treat mental health disorders. So the big categories or the big classifications of that would be antidepressants, antipsychotics, anxiolytics, and mood stabilizers. So those are the big, big categories of those. So and then we have, yeah, go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. I was, was going to say we have several medications that then fall into each of those categories. Now, okay, so. These, you know, the understanding has always been that to to get on these medications, there's a gradual time of, you know, uh, someone prescribing will say it takes six weeks to start taking effect. Um, you know, I know they're all a little bit different, but what do you what do you look at as the protocol for when it takes a while to see if it's working, and if it's not, how long do you give it to give it that good old college try of seeing if it does work? And then, of course, gradually getting off. What is the time frame that you usually give to say to someone, see, you know, give it a chance, see if it's working? So that kind of depends on a couple of factors. And I, I literally was just talking to a patient this morning about this same concept. When, if I'm going to decide if the medication is going to be effective or if we decide that it's effective, I'm, we're going to base that off of how long have you been on it, but also what's the dose that you've been on. So if I have someone who is on a medic, any medication, and let's say that they were on a starting dose of like 25 milligrams for this specific med, and they, the maximum or like what we would consider the therapeutic dose is 200 milligrams. When I meet with that person in a couple of weeks to see how they're doing, if they tell me that, uh, you know, it kind of works a little bit, I don't think it's doing a whole lot, that actually doesn't surprise me. And I'm not afraid of that because because you were started at such a low dose, which is normal to do, because you were started at a low dose, I don't have extreme expectations that this medication is going to just turn everything around. Um, so what I'll say is, hey, 
do you feel any difference at all? Anything good, anything bad, let me know. If you can tell me that you feel something and you're not quite sure what it is, but you feel something or some type of improvement, that's actually great because it means for me, I'm going to push the dose a little bit more. So now we're going to go up to 50 or 75 and try it for a couple of more weeks. On the other hand of that, if I have someone who says, you know, I've been on this medication, it's a, it's a good, decent dose, but it doesn't feel like it's doing anything. At the point that you've been on it, you've given it a good try of at least a month. And I really like to push like up to about six weeks. If at that point you feel absolutely nothing, if that's what you can genuinely say, you feel no difference, then depending on a couple of things, I'm thinking about like, let's try something else. So I think in general with mental health meds, you do expect to see some changes in the beginning, but I, I, my general rule is we're not going to see the full therapeutic benefit or the full amount that this medication can do until you've been on it for about up to two months at a, at a good dose. When you say therapeutic dose, what do you mean by that? So when we start medications, um, so let's go back to this. If we, let's say we have this one antidepressant and we can use it, the maximum dose that you can be on is 200 milligrams. I would never start someone at the maximum dose because you're going to have all kinds of side effects. Um, But instead, I would start them off at 25 milligrams, and then in a couple of weeks, we'll go up to 50, and then 75. Like, we'll work up to a good therapeutic dose. And the therapeutic dose is, here is the dose that I would expect is going to give you benefit or is going to treat whatever it is that we're using it for. Does that go by weight, age? Does it matter? It kind of goes by... Um, by trials. So when all medications, when they go, when they get approved, they go through clinical trials. Um, and what they find is we've got these people, we've got patients who are in the trials and they try different doses and then they determine, oh, for the majority of these people, this was the dose that produced a benefit. So then when the drug comes on the market, then we say, okay, well, this is the therapeutic dose because when we were trying out this drug in clinical trials, this was the dose that for most of the people produced, um, produced a benefit. But what's important about that is knowing I'm all, I'm really big on treating patients and not treating numbers or treating based, like not being stuck to a certain rule. Um, so I've had people where they've been on a very low dose of a medication and they've been doing well. So that doesn't mean like if you're doing great, then great. We'll keep it at that. We don't have to push the dose just because my guidelines tell me the therapeutic dose is something, but if you're doing really well at a different dose, then we can keep it. So it's dependent on a couple of things, but ultimately I think we should just, it's really dependent on the therapeutic dose is dependent on what you say. If you're doing well, great. If you're not, let's push the dose and see if we can go, if we can get some benefit from it. Interesting. Can we go back? I just have a question on what you, what you said before. Uh, you were saying that if somebody needs, let's say, something, an antidepressant, there are several antidepressants, antipsychotic, the same, and so on. How do you decide which, you know, we all know there are so many medications on the market under each of these categories. How do you decide mm-hmm. which do favorite medications uh, of brands of each of these, or is it just there's certain things about certain ones and you know what would benefit someone? How do you decide which? Let's say it was an antidepressant or or whatever. That's a really good question because all of a lot of the patients I work with, they they all say, 
I feel like we're such a guinea pig sometimes. Like mm-hmm. we're just picking things yes. out of the hat, picking something. Um, so there's, there is some thought that goes into it though. Um, I think the first thing to understand is when, if we're, if we're picking an antidepressant, when you pick an antidepressant on paper, they are all equally effective. So there's not one that we know, like this one works the best or this one works the best. Because sometimes I'll have patients say, put me on the best one. <laughs> if I'm just looking at them on paper, there is no best. They all, if I use them in equivalent doses, they are all equally effective. What makes them different, though, is the person. And so the way that I decide is I ask questions. And, and anybody that, any doctor that you talk to should be asking questions. So you should say, all right, if, I'm, if I know I'm seeing a patient for depression, we should say, all right, well, tell me what your symptoms are. Do you have a lack of appetite? Okay. Do you not like to sleep? Like you just cannot get to sleep? Um, do you have low motivation? So it might seem like I'm just asking you these random questions, but as you're saying those things, it's helping me to eliminate or to add certain medications. Um, so I can choose a medication based on, I know it'll help with certain symptoms. So some of our meds can help you to sleep better in addition to helping with depression. Some of them can help you gain an appetite in addition to helping with depression. Um, I also think about, some people don't realize this, I also want to know if you have a family member that has ever been on someone, a a medication, particularly a first-generation family member, so a mom or a dad, brother, sister. Not 100%, but if you have a mom or a dad that's been on some mental health medication and it worked, it's a good possibility that it will also work in you. Um, So I care about family history. I care about cost. What other medications are you on? So drug interactions. Um, what do you like? Do you not want to take a medication three times a day? Do you want to take it once a day? So again, like when I think about efficacy, that part, I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter because they all are equally effective. What I really base the decision on is those things, family history, drug interactions. Are you trying to lose weight? Do you want to gain weight? Do you have, what other things do you have going on? That helps me to narrow down the decision. Yeah, really interesting. And what is the difference between prescribing these medications for adults as opposed to children? So what's interesting about kids or about children is we don't have, a lot of our mental health medications are not FDA approved in children. Um, However, especially the antidepressants. But we can use them the same way. We use them in the same context, same way that we do with, with our adult patients. What some people don't realize, though, is I was just talking to someone yesterday about this. Children initially might actually need higher doses mm-hmm. than some of your patients. And that's because people don't realize that children, when you're young, you metabolize or you get rid of medic, you process medications um, more efficiently and different than adult patients. But as a result of that, the dose of your medication might need to be higher. So, Initially, you might think like, oh, you know, pediatric patients, we should use much lower doses, um, but that's not always the case. And then when they turn a certain age, then we might need to adjust the dose because, again, their metabolism has started to, like, equalize out. But we use a lot of the same medications that we use for adults. We also use for children. The one thing for me that I, I like to be kind of more aware of, though, is if I have... 
Um, if I know like some of our antipsychotics, I know that they're going to cause weight gain. I know that they're going to cause uh, increased cholesterol. I know that potentially they could cause increased risk of diabetes. If I had the choice, I don't want to start my pediatric patient on a medication that I know for sure has a high, high risk of causing of causing those things to happen because the truth is they're going to likely be on this medication for a long time or in maybe indefinitely in some cases. And so I'd rather choose a medication that will help with whatever it is I need them to help with, but it's also going to have the least amount of side effects because, again, most of these meds are going to be used long term. So I don't want to start my, my peds patient on, on a medication that could be that they're going to have to deal with not only the, the mental um, health disorder that they have, but also all of the side effects that come along with some of the meds. And when we're, when we're talking about children, the reason I asked you that obviously is my son, when he was younger, was given higher doses and it was very concerning. So I want to Mm -hmm. let parents know or caregivers of, of younger kids to not be so afraid if they're being prescribed that higher dose of whatever medication. And and just jumping on what Julie's saying, when you were saying before that with adults, you generally prescribe a low dosage and then work your way up if need be, for children, Mm -hmm. do you start out at the higher rate or, I mean, the higher dosage, or do you do the same thing and work work the way up to that? I should still be doing the same thing. So even in my, in my, my peace patients, I should still be starting at a lower dose. But the, and then work up to it. The reason for that, though, is just think about this. For any, if you know that a medication is going to cause side effects, um, if I were to give you 10 milligrams of that drug versus 300 milligrams of that drug, which dose do you think is going to cause side effects like more, or I guess more side effects? It's likely that 300 milligram dose. If I give you that today, it will likely cause all like side effects will be, will be pretty inevitable. But what we do is we start at 10 so that way I can ease your body into it, get you used to it and then slowly give it to you versus just giving it to you all at one time. Cause again, inevitably you will likely experience lots of side effects if we start at a dose that high. And the truth is you may not even need a dose that high. So that's why it's important that we start low. In pharmacy world, we say start low and go slow. So start low and titrate up to a dose that's most effective for the patient. Yeah, makes sense. When you're talking about side effects, I'm, I'm, I want to um, straighten out some some myths that maybe they're not myths, maybe they're facts. But like I've been told that ADHD medication can cause um, cause kids not to grow. Is that is that true or not true? Somewhat true. So there, and I can't remember offhand, but I want to say it's like centimeters um, when I read it. But there are some, there are some studies or some data that says that when you're on the stimulant medication for ADHD, that they can slow down growth. But when I read it, it wasn't, when I read it, it wasn't like, inches or feet, it was, it was a small amount, but either way, if that's still a concern to you, one of the things, one of the things that I appreciate about side effects is I would encourage everyone to reach out to whoever's prescribing your medications. There's often like a workaround for things. There's something that we can do for the side effects. So when it comes to the stimulants and then potentially like slowing down growth, which it's on technically on paper, it can happen. 
Um, we can do things like drug holidays or we can, um, we can adjust the doses of medications in order to, to kind of like counteract that effect. And what about things like weight gain or um, TD? Tart, I forgot yeah. how to say that. Dyskinesia. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Something like that. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. Um, my son had some ticks from medication, not verbal, uh-huh. but he had physical ticks from them. Yeah. So, they, like with the weight gain, I can already tell you, like, I'm thinking of certain medications. I'm like, okay, if I have a patient who's on this, I know that they are likely going to gain weight. And that's because what happens is, some of our mental health medications, you have a portion of your brain that tells you that you're full. Um, and it tells you that you're not hungry anymore because you're full. But what happens is the medications, in addition to doing like what we want them to do, they also can work in that part of the brain and kind of like block it so that you can't tell that you're full or you can't, you can't like regulate your hunger cues anymore. Um, and so you eat and you eat and you eat more than you probably normally would. Um, so what I tell people, and we were, I was just talking to a group of, a group of patients this morning about it is if I know that a medication is going to cause weight, one of the things that weight gain, one of the things that we can do is make sure that we're continuing to get like good physical activity in a couple of times a week. Make sure that you're eating like a well balanced diet. Um, so there are things that I'm going to do to, that I'm going to do to, I guess, to address that. When it comes to TD, oh my goodness. So TD, what's interesting about TD or tardive dyskinesia is we used to not have very good treatment for it. And it was important that you recognized it because TD, for the most part, we consider it irreversible. Like once you have it, you have it. That um, can, you, can we break and you can just um, define that for the for the um the listeners, what TD is, yeah, what the details so, of that look like. Mm-hmm. So TD is called is part of dyskinesia, and you get it for the most part with antipsychotic medication. The older antipsychotic medications would cause that to happen. What are the older um, ones? Sorry. Oh, it's okay. So Haldol, Flufenazine, um, Chlorpromazine. Those are our old, our what we call our first generation, our older antipsychotics. Um, and when you look at someone that has PD, you might notice, um, that their, their tongue is sticking out and they're not like purposely trying to do that. You might notice, um, lip smacking, um, or sucking of their lips. You might notice, it looks like they're like chewing on food, but they're, they're not. Um, they can have like, just like twitches or like squinches in their face. So they have all of these abnormal movements that they are not trying to do. But as a result of of part of dyskinesia is a result of long term use of the antipsychotics. So as like kind of like a, a backstory, tardive the word tardive means tardy or late. So one of the cues that I know that someone might have part of dyskinesia if they're if they're presenting with these symptoms is if you just started the medication like yesterday and you're having these symptoms, it's not likely PD. PD happens when you've been on the medication. It doesn't usually happen within the first three months. It happens when you've been on it long term. Um, but the reason why it's so important to recognize it is because we used to not have very good medications for it, not a real way to address it. Um, now we do have some treatment options, but it used to be 
it was non-reversible. So once someone had it, they had it. That's but again, so we had a lot more with our older antipsychotics. The newer ones, potentially, they still could have them. They all have that warning. Um, but we see less of it happening with the newer antipsychotics. Yeah, there's even a commercial that's currently on TV about how to combat that TD. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember what the drug is, of course, that's what you should remember, but, um, but, it's, but it's actually interesting that they have this now advertised to get rid yes. of this, you know, the ill effects of that. Yes, and, yes. And what about the, the ticks from medication? So same thing. So what happens is those ticks, particularly with stimulants, um, those ticks can happen if someone's on a stimulant for ADHD or if you're on a stimulant for anything else. The, the ticks happen because of dopamine. Because So what your stimulant medications do is they help with ADHD. They can help with focus concentration, but they increase um, dopamine in your, they increase dopamine in your, in your brain as well. Um, and we think that that's what leads to some of the ticks that we see in people that have ADHD. Um, so in order to treat that, we can use antipsychotics, um, or we can use other medications for ADHD. And are any of these stimulants we're talking about addictive? Do you consider them addictive? I mean, there's a rumor going around, and I probably read it online, you know, because Google never lies, but that a lot of <laughs> celebrities take Adderall to lose weight. So, yes. Um, yeah, they, they can be addictive. So one of, it's the truth, one of the, one of the, one of the common questions that I get, and usually, I used to work on a pediatric unit at a hospital, at a mental health hospital, and the parents would often ask, they would say, hey, I don't want to start my child on a stimulant medication because what if they get addicted or they can be addicted or what's going to happen with that? And what we find, though, is when you're using the stimulant medications as prescribed, as appropriate, you have less of a potential or less of a risk of becoming addicted to it or using it or abusing it than someone who has ADHD and is not using the medications or is not being treated appropriately at all. So again, like when someone has ADHD and we use the stimulant medications and they're taking it as appropriate, as prescribed, there's less of a risk of substance use, substance abuse in those patients compared to ones who have ADHD and are are not being treated in any kind of way at all, higher risk of substance abuse in that group of people. Um, but what happens too, and and I mean, again, I work at I work at a pharmacy school, and I hear it's a graduate degree program. I hear from my students. I don't know; they feel comfortable telling me all kinds of things. So, I've had students tell me, like, yeah, during final exam time, they might use certain certain stimulants, and from a friend or from whoever. Um, when someone has ADHD and they use a stimulant, it helps to stabilize things out for them. It helps to normalize, not normal, I don't want to use that word, but it helps to, to stable things out for them. When someone does not have ADHD and they use a stimulant, it gives them more of what they already have. So now I have more energy. I have, I'm more alert. I don't need to sleep. I can like, 
not necessarily focused, but I have just way more energy than I would if I were not taking the medication. And so you can, people can get addicted to that, that feeling, that euphoric effect. Um, but you could also, because you have more energy, it also can stimulate some the metabolism in your body. So you can cause weight loss as well. Um, so I think the different, like how it acts in different people is depending on what you're using it for and depending on if you have ADHD or not. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you brought that up because we had a guest come on who was was speaking about mental health issues and addiction, and they were mm-hmm. basically stating that, you know, once they got the mental health issues kind of in check, that the addiction mm-hmm. went away. So, I mean, it's kind of the opposite of what we were just talking about, but but similar. Yeah, yeah. And because here's the thing. So you you might think, okay, someone with ADHD, why, or even just mental health in general, I, you know, I have patients every day. Someone that I just spoke with yesterday was telling me, um, we started, we started him on an antidepressant, um, at the last visit last month. But when I talked to him for the first time last month, you know what he was using to treat his, his depression, alcohol. Mm, So when people are not getting the appropriate treatment, a lot of times they will self-treat and, and for them, not for the most part, but in what I see frequently is self-treating happens to be using alcohol, using, using some other substance. I mean, again, I talk to a lot of people who they can't sleep, so they drink alcohol for sleep. And I, I don't, I don't like support that because alcohol actually, while it makes you sleepy, you don't get good quality sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't recommend that. But again, it just shows like, more times than not, when I talk to people, if their mental health um, disorder is not being addressed, a good amount of people I have met or talked with are using some other substance in order to treat it themselves. So then when we start them on a medication or if we use like something or get them in therapy and that gets like, that gets, it's working well, now I don't have the need to use whatever substance I was using to help me to sleep or to help me to focus or to help me to do whatever it is I was using it for. Because you feel better. That makes great sense. Which is, which is also encouraging and hopeful. Um, It's great to know that you can have that also be uh, a system for recovery to whatever degree that you, you know, working therapy and a prescribed, prescribed something can yeah. can actually take away medication after a while if they can reach their, you know, what their goal was with recovery. Well, well and that's the Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. That's like a really, really important point that I wanted to that I want to bring up with everyone. Because I, I get this question a lot too. Is um so a lot of a lot of patients that I meet with are kind of hesitant about being on medication. But I say, listen, for for me, depending on the severity, just because I'm a pharmacist, it doesn't mean that I am I am all like, you have to be on all the medications. Like, that's it. That's the only option. The truth is, what I find works best is people who take their meds, but you also go to therapy. You also go to group. You go to, you do things outside of medications that are going to help with whatever it is that you're going through. I see better outcomes in those patients versus people who only rely on the medication. In other words, it's not a magic pill. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think I always try and preach like the, 
I want people to have realistic expectations that if you're in a situation at home, if you are in, if you have trouble with, with, I don't know, like some, some, if you went through, I had a patient that went through a really bad breakup, right? I, and she was very depressed afterwards. I can give you an antidepressant, but that doesn't mean that breakup is not going to hurt. It's mm-hmm. still going to hurt. Right. You're still going to heal. Um, but we're going to use therapy plus the medications to help you like get through this time period to help you to help you process and move through this. But it doesn't mean that you're you're never going to be depressed or sad again because you are. That's normal to be to feel something. I I tell patients I say, listen, if you tell me that we've started a medication and now you feel absolutely nothing, you feel you don't feel happy, you don't feel sad. I actually don't want that. For me, that means I got to adjust my dose because I don't want you to be emotionless. Yeah, I want you to have right. some. Mm-hmm. We don't want a bunch of people walking around very flat. Yeah, like zombies. No, we don't want that. I get a lot of questions from families about two things. Um, mm-hmm. Bipolar and mixing ADHD medication. I'm, I'm assuming stimulants, but I don't want to speak for them. And what is the magic pill for schizophrenia? (laughs) I know there's no magic pill, but curious Mm -hmm. your thoughts. All right. So bipolar, I actually had a friend just ask me about this, bipolar and mixing the stimulants. So one thing offhand that I would be concerned about with mixing stimulants in someone that has a diagnosis of bipolar disorder is, so like as a background, when when someone has bipolar disorder, um, in general, we see that there's different like episodes that someone could have. So we have mania at the high, and then you have depression at the low. When you are manic, we think that there might be an increase. You have these chemicals in your in your brain called norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin. When you are manic, we think that norepinephrine, dopamine, and or serotonin might be high, higher than, than it normally would be. And that's what's causing a lot of those manic symptoms. So my concern or my fear would be if I use a stimulant in someone who is experiencing manic symptoms as a part of their bipolar diagnosis, then the stimulants, they also increase norepinephrine and dopamine. So potentially, I mean, I guess technically I could be making their manic symptoms worse. Um, But in someone that has bipolar 2 or maybe they have more depressive symptoms, I have seen like off-label that we can use ADHD medications or stimulant medications to help bring them out of that that depressive episode. Um, But you just have to be really careful. So making sure, the thing about bipolar disorder is your medications potentially could change depending on the episode that the person is presenting in. Um, so it doesn't mean that you'll be on a stimulant forever. It doesn't mean that you'll be on, on certain medications forever. It could be depending on kind of how they're presenting. I can use the appropriate medication for that. That's great advice. Um, I remember when my son was, was very young and he was diagnosed originally with bipolar disorder and ADHD and then, so mm-hmm. they put him on antipsychotics and also mm-hmm. stimulant medication. Mm-hmm. And I said no to something as we were driving. I don't remember what he wanted to stop at the store or McDonald's. It doesn't matter. But he jumped out of my car. 
That was his mm-hmm. reaction, a, a moving vehicle. And I thought at yeah. that time, like, this medication is definitely not working and we need to call the doctor ASAP. So I think if caregivers yeah. or parents are seeing any of these things or, you know, it, it's it's time to call the doctor immediately. Yeah, I'm, I, mean, I think, I feel like that brings up another good point of like, if you are, I don't, you all tell me, I don't know why people feel this way, but like, Sometimes I meet with patients and it might be their first time meeting with me, but they've met with like other providers before and they're like, oh, I just walk into the room and they give me meds and I just leave. Mm -hmm. And I don't ask, they don't say things and I'm afraid to, or I'll talk to them. I'll say like, hey, like, what do you, even my own patients, I'll say, okay, what do you think about this treatment plan? And they'll say, oh, you know, like whatever you want to do, you're the doctor, whatever you want to do. And I'm like, listen, this is, this is going inside your body and it's, this is for you. Like I need you all to be advocates for yourselves. Ask questions, ask me all the questions that you want. Let's make a decision together. If you have, if you're hesitant about something, that's another thing that I preach to patients. Tell me the truth. If you hate the medication, tell me if you love it. Tell me if you are taking it sometimes, tell me if you're only taking it once a month, tell me. I'm not going to be mad at you. I'd rather you tell me so that we can figure out what's the best plan to help you versus letting me think that you're doing one thing and you're actually not. So if something's going on, I'd just tell me and then let's figure out how to how to address it, how to make it best for you. It's great that you really listen to what what these patients are saying because the the message you're really giving us above above many is just that it depends on the person all of this you really have to listen to the needs to tailor the plan yes yes and you know what i'm i am definitely not trying to down like other providers because i get it especially after the pandemic we've seen that there's been an increase in and the need for mental health care and so there are a lot even where i work the psychiatrists their patient load is huge and so while I, and it might take months to get an appointment at certain providers' offices. So while I have the opportunity to spend a little bit more time with patients, I understand that not every single provider has that. Um, but I still, I, I really do really hope that anybody that's going to be on any medication, mental health, medical meds, anything, be an advocate for yourself. If you have questions, I always tell people, write them down before you go to your doctor's office, or doctor's appointment or whatever appointment it is. Write down the questions so that when you get there, you're focused, you're not flustered, you're able to pull out your list, ask your questions, so that you can feel confident in, in doing whatever whatever plan that you all decide is best. Yeah, this is, it's important to ask this. So your title, you are a, uh, as we said, a board-certified mental health pharmacist. You're how, you know, your your theory on this is so fabulous, what you're saying, of, you know, how you listen and prescribe. Somebody mm-hmm. generally goes to a therapist and the therapist will, you know, a social worker, psychologist will say, we believe medication could help send someone to a psychiatrist to have that discussion and prescription. How, how does mm-hmm. somebody find a mental health pharmacist? I mean, it's just, um, that role is just so important that you're playing. But it seems to me people may not know that 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 this exists. Am I wrong yeah. about that? No. So I'm, I mean, again, like my own family doesn't know what I do half the time. But what what? So 
it's a little bit tricky because honestly, when you talk to a pharmacist, um, you are likely most people, when you see a pharmacist, you're seeing the person that is behind the counter, the one that's helping mm-hmm. the dispensation. The doctor um, sent you with something. Exactly. They gave, they gave you a prescription. You're going to go to wherever you go to get it filled. Um, those pharmacists can, can definitely answer whatever questions that you might have. Um, then so you have community pharmacists and then you have a group of clinical pharmacists and clinical pharmacists are the ones that, um, for the most part are doing what I do. So you work, you work in doctor's offices, you work, um, with patients in hospitals, you work in certain clinics. So I say like, say that you wanted to find me, um, you wouldn't find me unless you were working. You wouldn't, we would not be working together for the most part. We wouldn't be working together unless you were a patient at my hospital. Um, but even my colleagues, you wouldn't come into contact with them unless you were a patient at one of their hospitals or one of their clinics. So a lot of clinical pharmacists, and again, the clinical pharmacists, I say that to mean it's a pharmacist that has a specific area of specialty. So mine is mental health. I have some of my colleagues, their specialty is diabetes. And some of them, um, I have one that does um, antibiotics or infectious diseases. But we all work in like certain specialty clinics um, as opposed to like having like your own practice or working, working so that the general public can come see you. But what I, what I do think Um, you should look into is NAMI. I actually um, thought about you all because I was at an event this weekend and uh, the not the local NAMI chapter had a table set up there and they were talking about how they do education nights. I think like once a month or something like that. Education. Yes. And so I was in contact with them to say like, Hey, I would love to like come and do one of these nights with you and answer any questions that people have or just regular, regular, any, anything I can do to help, I want to do that. So I think through avenues, through other organizations, or if other organizations can, can tap into like, Hey, I wonder if a pharmacist can come speak or some do, do contribute in some, some kind of way, then it would open up the doors for like more people to know like, Hey, maybe I should ask my pharmacist more questions about whatever it is that I have. That's great. Yeah, I agree with you. I think um, often we go into Walgreens or CVS or whatever your local pharmacy is, and and it doesn't. They don't seem approachable, and I don't think that's um, a personal thing. It's just, you know, you're in the middle of a store. You have ten people behind you. You don't want to be asking about my depression or I have bipolar disorder. I'm sorry, suffer from. You know, what yeah. do you think, Mister Pharmacist? Um, it's a little yeah. awkward because it's not so personable. Well, yeah, and also I'd say the most talked about is do you want generic or, or do you mind having the generic version of this drug? That's about right. as much as they would talk, which I don't mean to cut into this, but this is an important question before and before we come to a close. When somebody is on a mental health medication, antidepressant, antipsychotic, whatever it is, for a while, mm-hmm. and they're not on the generic version... And then suddenly, you know, insurance changes and the insurance company will only cover the generic form of that drug. And maybe it just came out with a generic version. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that something that changes effectiveness? Because 
I can remember two stories of callers and someone actually in one of my support groups who had this issue where uh, mm-hmm. I think, I, I don't remember what they were on, but the effectiveness definitely changed and they had an issue twice you know, out of many people. But is that a myth or is that true that if you're on something for a while, like let's say you get, you get sick and you have to take penicillin and the mm-hmm. pharmacist will say, do you care if it's the generic? Usually you'd say no. But if you're on something for a, you know, uh, the long run, does it matter? It shouldn't, but there are some cases that it, that it might. So what happens is whenever a generic drug comes out, in order for that generic medication to be approved, it has to show that it is equally, as equally effective to the brand's product as they have to be both be equal before the FDA says, yes, generic product, you can come out. However, there is some, the FDA does allow for, for minimal variability. Um, so it might be that there's slight variability in how much drug is absorbed or how much drug gets to a certain area of your body. But that variability is, is not supposed to be significant. Like it, it doesn't, it's not supposed to be so that one works versus the other. Okay. But that doesn't mean that that, that doesn't happen. Because I again, I I think part of it might be placebo. So it might be like you're thinking, no, no, no. I'm again in my head. I'm like I'm getting this new medication. My other one was working, and then again, you've worked out in your head that like suddenly because you're on this other med that it's not going to work. When it is, but you're already telling yourself it's not. Yeah, so it might look not. different, right. and it's a different color, yeah. Or different. Yeah. Right. But I mean, technically speaking, like when a generic medication comes out before it can even reach our hands, it has to be able to prove that it is equally effective to the brand name product with the FDA allowing slight variability. Where that matters to me is particularly if someone's using a medication for seizures. Um, So if I generally tell my patients that have had seizures, I say, listen, if you're on a generic product, a brand product, no matter what it is, I would, and it's controlling your seizures, I would prefer that you stay on that certain brand, certain generic, whatever medication, stay on that certain one, because potentially that slight variability might mean the difference between um, controlled seizures or not. So in that case, I do want you to stick to a certain, a certain brand or generic or whatever product that you got stable on um, versus other medications. I'm pretty much an advocate of if it comes generic and it's less expensive, let's like give it a try. When people say that they can't tolerate the generic, it's usually not the active drug that they can't tolerate. It's usually the fillers or the other, the inactive. Exactly. It's the inactive, the inactive ingredients that, that, that they cannot tolerate. Um, so the inactive ingredients can be different from, from generic to generic. But that's why, that's why when you get a pill, one month it's green, one month it's white, one month it's round, one month it's square. Um, each gen- generic manufacturer, the active ingredient is the same. The fillers or inactive um, ingredients may not be the same. And once again, depends on the person. Good know. to know. Before, interesting. Yeah. Before we wrap up, and I know we only have a couple of minutes left, let's revisit the miracle pill for schizophrenia that you are going to give us. <laughs> And yes, I say that with sarcasm. And then my my last question would be, 
who should be, be who should be prescribing this medication? Can we just go to a pediatrician, gynecologist? What would be mm -hmm. your advice in that? Oh my gosh, I love that question. Let's go with the the magic pill first. All right, magic pill. You already know there is no magic pill. <laughs> But there is some, for schizophrenia, there is some evidence that shows, um, I mean, I guess we need newer data, but there is some, some clinical trials that show, or clinical studies that show us, um, of all of the antipsychotics, there's one, and that's clozapine um, or clozaril, that's been shown to have better efficacy than some of our other antipsychotics. But that's why we don't use it first. We save our best for last. We use that for treatment-resistant schizophrenia. Um, because it is also associated with lots of side effects, side effects, lots of monitoring, a lot of things associated with that one. But in general, even our antipsychotics, there's not one that's best. There is one that's best for you, yeah. but that one would be best for everybody else. Great to know. Mm -hmm. and, and then, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Who's, who should be prescribing this? Where should people be going to get prescriptions? So I personally, this is my own personal belief. I personally believe that when it comes to the mental health medications, I think if you have the ability to go to um, to go to a psychiatrist or to go to a mental health pharmacist, someone that specializes in that, I would encourage you to do so. Especially, particularly if it's like a if it's more complicated than than I guess if it's discomplicated. But that's because I, a psychiatrist. A mental health nurse practitioner, they've done special training, extra training in order to say like, hey, I know, I know a lot about this area of medicine. Let me help you manage it. Um, but I know that's not, that's not feasible for everybody. Um, even myself, I started an antidepressant. It was my, my OBGYN that gave it to me. Um, if in that case, though, I would say, I would encourage people who are pediatricians or, or family medicine doctors, re, like, let's talk to each other, reach out. I love it when I get questions from, from providers outside of psychiatrists that say, like, hey, I need some help, like, with this specific case. I think if we work together, then we can all, we can help each other and have better outcomes for patients. But so in an ideal world, you would go to a specialist if that's not always the case. I would hope that if your provider that you are going to is uncomfortable, at least they can reach out to a specialist. And then you can follow up with a pharmacist, right? Yeah. 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 If they're not an expert in the field and you're not, and yeah. you're unsure. Yes, definitely. Definitely. I know that when people go to, when you go to community pharmacies that you are, you know, they're busy. Um, but if you can like make an appointment, some of them take appointments, make appointments. Oh, that's good for go people to know. Yeah. Yeah. What I used to work in um, community pharmacy and we would be able to make appointments with people um, to come at like non-peak times. And then that way you have more of their attention so that you can ask all the questions that you want. Great. You have been a plethora oh, of Thank information. So I'm sure I have a million more questions. We will definitely yeah. have to have you back on. Most definitely. This was really, really informative. Thank you so much for oh, all of your thank time. Thank you, Dr. Allen. Thank you for being with thank us today. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. Until thank next you. time. Yeah, we'll have to have a part two. For sure. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behindourdoor@mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.